0: Bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic, this is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Ratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. Today, I am joined by the global head of cities and transportation policy at Uber, Shinpei Se. Shinpei is here today to talk about working on urban mobility globally, inclusivity in transportation and where transportation and climate change intersect. So let's welcome Shinpei to the show. Well, hi, Shinpei, it's so great to have you on the show.
1: Well, great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: Great. I know everyone's really curious about your job. So we'll start with that since you work for this very well-known global company. And then we can learn more about you and your story. And there's so much that I find interesting about it. First of all, what is your role at Uber, one of the most important companies in transportation
1: in the world? Yeah, it's a mouthful. I'm the head of global cities and transportation policy. So I sit in the headquarter office, work globally, a centralized team that covers different issue areas. And our team covers the issue areas that deal with urban mobility. And I would say that it's across really three pillars that I think are of interest to cities and have material where Uber can make a contribution. One is the environmental impact, so sustainability. The second, are just diversification of mobility services. So we, we have someone that supports new mobility products and they include things like two-wheelers and three-wheelers around the world outside of the U.S., taxi partnerships, transit partnerships, a bunch of high-capacity vehicles. We have buses in Cairo. And so you can imagine like building out the diversity of ways that people can move around, Micro mobility partnerships. And then the third pillar is what I call like small S, small I social impact, thinking about people with disabilities, how they use a the platform, underserved communities, how they use the platform, and making sure that it works for them as well. So we try to cover the spectrum from a city's lens of what's important. That's a really large
0: portfolio of work, I imagine. Can you elaborate on who you work with internally at the company, what groups or teams, and then who you work with externally? And like, what's an average week like for you?
1: Yeah, we work really closely with local policy teams. I think of our job as helping them do their job. So they're the ones that own the relationships with specific city stakeholders, the mayor's office, specific city DOTs. Maybe there's a federal policy team or a national policy team. So they own the national policy arena. So Uber is one of those interesting companies that works in a lot of different policy arenas, right? It is impacted by a lot of different kinds of policies. So we think of our work as helping them have those conversations with their stakeholders, giving them things to share about ways that we're showing up as a business, and then also helping to make connections to other stakeholders, right? That's The way that things are built is not always only about the city. It's also the third sector, right? It's NGOs and other stakeholders and thought leaders. And a lot of my team's work is to develop those relationships, understand what they're looking for, understand where things need to be moving towards, and helping to be a conduit for that outside-in conversation as well as an inside out conversation this is what's hard about doing it this is where we can really make a difference and i think of our role as being that conduit in a translator in a way the other way that we bound it though as you're saying like it sounds so big as i said like it's a mouthful of a title so the portfolio seems quite vast we really have to prioritize and make sure that what we're talking about is where there is material impact on the business right this is a company It needs to make money. It's a public company. It has shareholders. And so we're thinking about where do we meaningfully show up? So it's not showing up in every single issue. It's about where does it really make sense given the product and the services it's providing?
0: That's a really interesting point. You and I both have worked a lot in nonprofits where there are no boundaries, really, You have to make them, and it's really hard. It's swimming upstream. Is that a relief to have boundaries? The goal of making money and being accountable to shareholders, does that help you prioritize where to work?
1: I think, in a way, it actually helps a lot, right? There's a kind of saying in the design world that constraints help make you more creative. And not so much about the investor relations bit, but When I first joined Uber, I was hired initially to build out a program where we would launch initiatives that I am actually speaking about, but it would be a bit outside of core mobility services, which was the rideshare business. And COVID happened. There were significant changes to the organization. There were layoffs. There was resourcing, cutback. A lot of capacity was reduced in order to get us through what was a huge unknown with a pandemic. The business dropped 80% nearly overnight, right? If you look at March 2020 to April 2020. So it was like, oh my gosh, what do we do in this moment? And I would say since then, I've had to operate in an environment of significant constraint. The team was smaller. We've had to be much choosier about the priorities. But I actually feel that in that process, we are in a better place because those initiatives that I initially was planning on launching a bit like as an extension of the mobility operations are now embedded within mobility operations. And not maybe every single thing that I wanted to do or hope to do, but quite a bit of it and more. And to see that one of the biggest challenges about now, you and I have talked a lot about this, is, you know, just kind of breaking down the barrier of like, how do you make transportation work? And lowering that line between private and public in terms of, like, can we expand the tools that we have? Can we create more tools that cities can have to help people get places? I'm, like, heartened to see, like, there are teams trying to figure that out, right? Like, they're working on how does this happen? How does this work in all these little ways? And it's part of the overall business. That's really great
0: to hear and remarkable because as Many people know that efforts to change how people travel in cities to make it more sustainable and safer and less car-oriented have struggled. We've made some progress, but especially in the U.S., it's been incremental. Other countries are moving at a faster scale, it looks like, in other regions, some other regions. I'm curious, based on your experience working at Uber globally, like what do you think are some of those differences? What holds us back a little bit here in the U.S.?
1: I should really position Rideshare, right, as a start. This isn't necessarily, Do some people use it, a very small percentage of people use it day-to-day, Rideshare itself, but maybe more people are on the platform day-to-day because there's a delivery business now. But the most active users are less frequent, much less frequent, right? They might use it once a week. They might use it once a month. And what they're doing all those other times are largely dependent on what's available in the city and what the city has created infrastructure for and what people feel is convenient and safe and affordable. In many cases, many American cities or Canadian cities are, as you're saying, you know, quite car-prioritized. And I think of the role of the platform as helping to reduce dependence on that infrastructure by providing other ways. So if you can leave your car home you have a better chance of taking a train, maybe one leg of the trip or catching, if there's micromobility, maybe taking a bike. And then maybe you take car share or ride share on the way home. But you have a better chance of really diversifying being a multimodal individual out and about. But that's a real reflection of the infrastructure that's in place. So I think what's been really heartening to see, too, is that the distance between what rideshare provides as a service and the urban environment in which it thrives overlaps significantly with the sustainable urban mobility infrastructure that we think we want, right, that we we all have been working towards. And so there's this alignment that's happened from that, I don't know, conceptualization. I think the second part of this, though, is it's still... Let's, you know, let's be real. It's rideshare, it's cars, driving people, it's on demand. So the other material impact that we can have is to electrify the cars on the platform. And that's another way. We want to make sure we're getting, you know, all the other pieces of the system in place. So we're not having, as the head of global sustainability policy, here calls it silent traffic jams. That's not what we're after, right? (laughs) (laughs) If people have to choose a car, we want to make it the cleanest car or create the opportunity for them to be in a very clean car and to help drivers who want to drive EVs get into EVs. And I think the work there where we've made a commitment to be on zero emission platform by 2030 in U.S., Canada, and Europe, and 2040 in the rest of the world, which these are aspirational, they're ambitious, but it puts a stake in the ground, gives us sizes. You know, the investment, we're putting $800 million behind getting drivers into EVs and you can kind of see in this past year where we've made the commitment at the end of 2020 this past couple of years have been building it out and launching it and putting it in front of users the EV adoption rate now on the platform is faster than public adoption of EVs that's really amazing so in that short amount of time like this is this has been viewed as an intractable problem how do we get EVs into the hands of People who, you know, it's often the second or third car in the household. It's for the upper income households. That's not the case for the drivers on the platform, right? But all the things that make it make sense for the driver, that has to be sorted. And so now you're in, again, like finding this alignment. We want it to be an equitable transition. All this infrastructure funding coming down has to be an equitable transition. This is some of the connections we're making
0: Right. These are a ton of connections that you and I both know haven't been possible to make until now. And I think most people would agree even Uber wasn't thinking about these things or prioritizing them several years ago and government didn't have the tools. And, and then there's a the civic sector. And I do see that alignment more and more around vision. And we are looking for ways to scale now. And right. you have scale. And you and I have talked about Working proximately, you are an urban designer. It'd be great if you could briefly explain what that means, but you're used to working at the human scale and clearly feel a lot of passion around that, which I'd love to hear a little bit more about. I mean, it seems like your life's purpose if we look at all the roles you've played in urban design and advocacy at the local level in New York City and- being a fellow and a board member, like this seems like your life's work. And now you're working at this enormous scale that is very much not human skilled, I'm guessing you're not out on the street. And I just have to add something I read on your website today, which is, yeah. I wonder if you wrote this sentence, it says our business also exists in the real world on the streets of thousands of cities. And it's important we stay connected to the places we serve.
1: <laughs> I can not take credit for it. But I think that's a good illustration of where the company has evolved, right? That it's really recognizing that there's local impact. It's recognizing that it has a huge impact for people who are looking to kind of flex some work, right? It has all these human impacts in a way, impacts on every, people's daily lives that I think that we sometimes overlook against the backdrop of everything else. But yeah, in urban design, I know, is sometimes I'm as surprised as the next person. Like, I really care about the built environment. I care about the function and the form of the built environment. And I actually got into transportation because it had such a huge impact on the built form. It essentially defined neighborhoods and It defined people's access. It defined their economic opportunity. It defined whether or not we had nice places to walk around and bike around. It had such a huge determining factor in cities that I got into transportation policy as a result of it. And so as much as I had one foot in urban design and being on the Public Design Commission and reviewing plans and being thoughtful about sites and having the great honor of teaching, I was also really engaged on... How do we do this at scale? At scale means policy change. There was a moment when I was a bicycle advocate and I was working on like a lot of street redesigns and then using that as a way of creating campaigns to engage the community, to advocate for these changes. So the DOT put some budget aside and make the complete street. And I did that like for one intersection and then another intersection. And I think by the third or fourth one, I was like, we need a program. We need like the policy change. This can't be just for the neighborhoods, where there are volunteers that have the time to campaign for these things, we need this to be of a benefit that everyone can experience and have in their neighborhoods. And that really continuously led me into policy in a way. And I think taking that lens as I was working on policy in the nonprofit field and trying to look at these different changes and working at all scales, like I was at a foreign policy think tank, which works at a very much national, global level, and then was, as you said, like working at a much more local level with local advocacy, it started to become really clear that in that policy realm too, though, there was stagnation because there were some things that people just held on to as principles that were really difficult to give up. And because industry does get formed as a result of policy frameworks, there was a big incumbent transit industry that wanted things to stay the same. There were big automaker industries that wanted things to stay the same and wanted the road infrastructure funding to stay the same. There were communities that were not dense. They liked that lifestyle. They wanted to be that way that didn't agree with some of these things. And I started to feel like there was kind of this kind of mental barrier in a way and a lack of openness as you start to work in these things because they're, yes, yes, like the policies have to change but also we need to expand the tent. We need to get way more people <laughs> engaged on this. When you're talking about those like transit advocates or bicycle advocates, you're talking about 10% of all the trips in the US. We need to all together work on the, you know, 90% of people who only really want to drive and who feel that driving is the most convenient and affordable thing they can do. And that's the reality of the situation. And so I really wanted to get into see if we can like shave off a couple of the percentages there in that group and work in a place that 100 million users. It's really reaching people at a level that as a bicycle advocate, you're not going to have that reach.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And also for folks listening, I don't think one is better than the other, but where do you want to work today is maybe a career question. For where you are, this was a great place to be and to learn and have an impact. And some people might want to move more local in what they're doing. You need it all, right? We need it all. (laughs) We need it all. And yeah, we need it all. And the idea of proximity, everything just happens at the sort of animal human scale at the end of the day at a physical
1: and material scale. Yeah. I mean, even at a big place like this, at the end of the day, it's the executive leadership, right, that makes decisions. They're taking in all the information that they take in and they're thinking through what makes the most sense. And so then being proximate to that process too, inside a big organization, ends up being influential to a certain extent, right? Because you're having those conversations. You can give New ways of thinking about it. Like, so now you're finding it then publicly reflected on our website where we're really embracing the idea that we need to show up in every city. We operate in every city. We're very much a local operations kind of company as much as it's a global place, too. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're also
0: speaking to, I think, is about getting the whole system in the room. So if you want to change things, it's not just the bike advocates or the yeah. public sector, or the public transit, who are communities that spend a lot of time together with themselves because it's right. necessary or because that's just easier to do. And and to get the whole system in the room, which is an, a concept and systems change, there has to be a convener. Someone has to yeah. have the resources to invite everybody to the table. So How can people do that? Let's say you're just like working on a highway or a rail project or one single thing, but you want to broaden the conversation.
1: Yeah, I think that's such a good question. And I would say that I don't necessarily believe that's Uber's role. I think that it's in an interesting position right now because it's trying to diversify the platform with lots of different services. So it ends up touching all these different types of arenas. But there are so many, and maybe this is a bit of the shift that I kind of would love to see and want to contribute to is there's so many nonprofits who are in a position to be in a convening role, but they might have a concept that like the private sector actually doesn't, we want to really limit the private sector participation, or we really need to limit this other organization or what have you. I mean, there are these historic concepts that come into play. And I would love to see kind of an update to that. Like, what are we really trying to achieve here altogether? Who needs to be in the room for us to do this together? You know, let's not hold on to some of this ideological stuff. Let's really think about like, what is necessary for us to make this change together. And so I, I do think that we actually have quite a bit of social infrastructure, but we have to kind of update the thinking or be more much more open and flexible yeah that makes a lot of sense
0: and I agree there's a lot of that social and civic infrastructure out there Are there operating principles or rules of engagement that work for everyone to be at the table together to, especially private sector and those who are uncomfortable for whatever reason with the private sector
1: Yeah I, I think something that is really prevalent these days that stand in the way of having more honest conversations about this is a bit of a purity test. Are you on my side or are you on the other side? And a vilification of what other means. And as someone who has always been othered in general in my life, I find this such a kind of inhibitor to learning and curiosity and it inhibits the conversations we need in order to think differently about these problems and think differently about the solutions. So I think that's like one operating principle. is: Can you accept that we share the goal? I think sometimes people have a really hard time with that when they've othered, right? But yes, let's be also honest where we have differences. Let's be honest about that. I think having those two things in play, which are quite challenging, right? (laughs) In a group setting. But I think that's what's necessary, right? That honesty about difference, as well as the kind of non vilification of Mm. that there is an alignment.
0: I think I know what you mean by the purity test. And I agree as someone also who's been othered and kind of separating people into little categories really is just dehumanizing in a lot of ways. Can you explain the purity test, though, as it exists? I
1: mean, the easiest thing is that, like, you're not a true bicycle advocate unless you despise cars. And not recognizing that. And I think that was one kind of a failing that I experienced when I was a bicycle advocate, that the cities were moving and being built in a way where it was really difficult to not have a car If you wanted to live in an affordable neighborhood and to say that something you absolutely need to live your everyday life suddenly makes you not a supporter of bicycles, that's the example that I think about a lot is you can have a car and you can identify as a cyclist and advocate for the right
0: modes at the right time. Thank you for sharing that. I've seen the same purity test with transit, public transit versus driving when realistically public transit can't cover most of the trips or meet the needs that a car can. And then there's shaming. There's shaming. That goes on with this too, which I think is really unhelpful
1: behavior. So much shaming. (laughs) So much shaming. Yeah. Self-righteousness. And you you think like, I, I have definitely encountered people who have been through like Peak oil, oil crisis, 70s, environmental movement, like standing up this thing, having been through the hard part of getting better infrastructure, improving transits, you know, all of it. And and I think they're just kind of like, can I hang on to this? <laughs> like, I've been working for so long. I want to hang on to this. And it's it's like, well, we're still moving forward, right? Like, let's recognize where people are today. Let's recognize yeah. their needs where they are today. And yeah, let's hang on to that and let's do more. Let's not stay there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: We still have a long ways to go on the environmental work. Yeah, I want to ask you about what I see as a next edge with that for a lot of groups and institutions, which is what does it look like to really empower people to create their own places and design their own infrastructure to be more sustainable and to do it maybe even faster in a different way than an institution would do it? Are you seeing that? Like, how can we make that transition?
1: Yeah, outside of the U.S., right, informal transport is so prevalent because people are so good at figuring another option out. We call it informal, but it's quite organized. It's nearly formalized. The only thing is it's not publicly funded and it doesn't actually have the same prioritization on the right of way. So I think that people are incredibly innovative when given the chance. And if then empowered with the right tools, some of those great strengths can become maybe formalized in a way where like more people can participate, make use of them and get benefits from those systems. I think that's on like more system level, like I think of the Mutatus in Nairobi and Some of the, even like the cab companies in Latin America, like there are all these little ways that people shared rides or shared transportation that was not state provided. That's really incredible. On a local level, the ways that people kind of really take ownership over the public realm in their neighborhoods, I think also contributes so much to infrastructure. Like a little bit makes such a huge difference painted crosswalks, some art, some plantings, a sense that someone is expressing care for their spaces that they share is such an amazing way to express, you know, to really build infrastructure. And I think that goes even beyond, right? There's the social infrastructure that happens as a result of making that expression in public space. And, I really love those kinds of projects as well. And I think that many people don't even think of them as projects. They're like, this is my street, it's my block. I care about it and I want to show that I care, which I think is incredible. I love that
0: way of thinking of infrastructure, these little bits of infrastructure people are adding. And I think we could do a lot more to unleash it. I lived on a street in Oakland where we were very torn, whether to go through official channels or to care for our street to make it safer and more beautiful and kind of got stuck in that dilemma Actually,
1: Uh, uh I live on a block that was a cul-de-sac and we used to just (laughs) grab a traffic cone from one of the, you know, like there was always some work going on near us and we would just put it in the middle of the street and all the drivers coming down would have to navigate around this traffic cone. And I just thought that was like. Yes. Perfect. That was perfect. We had a little gathering outside. It was perfect for the kids to run around safely. And yeah, we did the same thing with garbage
0: cans to just
1: make our streets
0: (laughs) slower. This to me points to a bigger question of people being feeling like they can care for the space around them that doesn't just belong to another institution or a landlord or the government that it belongs to
1: them. How do you get folks to believe that? Or when is it appropriate? This is so hard. This is a hard thing to scale, isn't it? Because I really learned about my ability as a person, a citizen of the city, to want those things and to deserve to ask for those changes. When I was working at local advocacy, I did not feel like I had a right to ask for those things. I was an immigrant. I was expected to kind of you know, stand in line and behave. so-called behave. And the idea of like making an additional request was far beyond me. But once I kind of understood and I learned and I learned from amazing advocates that this was very much a part of how government works, that this is the system that we live under and we should use. This is a system, right? And when I then starting to then do a bunch of community workshops and soliciting feedback from neighbors or residents who often didn't get a chance to even comment about changes in their neighborhood, a lot of the conversation was like, yes, you can ask for that. Yes, this is your block. You can ask for those things. It was like a mind-blowing <laughs> exercise in some ways and, and really inspiring.
0: I hope that people listening to this are getting this message to act on the care that you feel or the ideas that you have and ask for them or find another way. I also, coming from an immigrant family, still struggle to feel entitled to those things or feel that I have to have a really big movement organized before asking for that to have a lot of proof for just asking for a street to be safer, which is kind of
1: that technical mindset too. Like, where's the data? Prove it to me. That's right. And yeah, it's very prevalent. It starts young too, like there was a high school class that we were working with in their neighborhood and led them on a a march over a bridge that ended at a rally at City Hall and some of the kids really needed to use the bathroom. And so I was like, yeah, let's just go into City Hall. We can use their bathrooms. And they were, I can go into City Hall. (laughs) Like Uh... they, it didn't even occur to them that this place was, you know, like it was theirs too. And so I think in other countries, this actually is part of education. Yeah. Learning about the civics, learning about like your neighborhood and learning about how things are created is part of the education. Like in Denmark, it's part of the education. I think there's more that we can do to also instill that sensibility. Wow,
0: absolutely. That seems really valuable to do that kind of education at a young age. There's another way of looking at it as responsibility. It's our shared responsibility to care for this place, to steward it. Everything needs maintenance and tending. You can't just leave it alone.
1: It has to evolve. And we have to be a part of that. Yeah. When I was leaving New York three years ago, there was a big conversation about a department of care and what that might look like. And it was like maintenance for the public realm, but it went beyond, right? We overlook the need of caregivers. We overlook the need of people. And what would be the activities of this department? It's kind of a fun exercise. What that reminds me of. We've been spending a lot of time in Hawaii with
0: my family, and one of the words they use a lot here in teachers Kuleana, the Hawaiian word for responsibility. It has a lot of different meanings, but it being a privilege and being ready and worthy to handle the responsibility of taking care of this place. Amazing. Of the place you live in. Yeah. Yeah. So I think language can really help us break through some of those barriers. Yeah. I love that. Mm. That's great. Yeah. So managing a big infrastructure project or any large, large project can be stressful. Where do you find order in the chaos?
1: Huh? That's A good question. I feel like I'm both a lifelong student. I love just learning about things, how things work. But I also feel like there's a part of me that's a teacher at heart, where I'd love to see people also get that feeling of learning and excitement and inspiration. And those are the moments that really make me happy. when There's a lot of things going on, and it's maybe tempers are flaring and this and that, and it seems really hard. But when I see people just have an aha moment about the value of what they're doing, you could see their horizon expand. An example of this is during COVID, we really had to pivot as a company, and there were all these new edicts that came out, right? Like no dining in restaurants, everyone shelter in place, all these things that we had to really adapt to. And we're a delivery company, and the merchants on the platform were like just really struggling and then they were struggling everywhere, right? Like small businesses, restaurants were all struggling everywhere. And one of the things I thought would be great to do was to help some of the merchants that are m- most impacted, disproportionately impacted by COVID, Black business owners, help them build out some parklets, build out some outdoor dining spaces, because they couldn't have people come in. And also, by way of that, creating ways like, we are a business. So like, okay, you know, the couriers come and they Kind of everyone can see everything's out. Like, let's put the restaurant outside. I convinced some people to fund this. Our great social impact team helped fund it. And we chose the site in New York City where we're going to pilot this. And and then as I was getting into, you know, like, how do we contract? How do we actually do this? Like, logistically, starting to run into lots of questions from our legal team, like, we're a tech company. What are we doing? Are we like, we're building something? Is that what we're really doing? (laughs) And I was like, well, this is like a really, this is an exceptional time, right? Like this is not our business as usual moment. We have to really think creatively. And thankfully, had a great partner on that team to help me. There was a slew of contracts we needed to get through and things that we needed to do. But at the end of it, when they saw the results They heard about the impact. There were businesses that rebranded and expanded their business. They increased their revenue. There were businesses that we increased dining space for some restaurants. The opportunity was like so expansive as we were in the trenches, like, you know, like wrestling things out. They were so proud of the work. Kind of like lighting up from within when they realized that this was what they were like struggling with. That's what it led to was So gratifying to me. And then proof in the pudding was that they asked for, a you know, like a department wide presentation on the program, which for a, you know, it's like a corporate legal department, right? It was actually really remarkable and something I was really proud of. So those kinds of moments are, I think, really meaningful. And you see them all the time, right? Like that was a particularly messy project. But you see this happen and and then like you get over it and um, it feels great. Oh, that's a great story that there's before and after. Exactly. It's
0: like a pivotal moment, a real little transformation that happened for somebody. Yeah, exactly. Or for a team. Thank you for sharing that. So one last question before I let you go. Is there any major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that's on
1: your bucket list to go and see one day? Oh, I consider this major, but it's not necessarily built. Uh, It's not necessarily like a big, like bridge or something. But the pedestrianization effort in Paris, I think has like completely transformed the city, transformed the places, has opened up the architecture, has really changed the way people move around. I am dying to see that <laughs> actually. And it's systemic, right? Like it's not just a block here or there. It's throughout a district, the center of the city, and I'm really excited to see that. Oh, I hope you get to do that. Shinpei, it was
0: so great to have you on this show. And I really want to thank you for sharing personal stories and sharing your life experience with us.
1: Well, such a pleasure to talk to you as always. Thank you for having me.
0: I want to give a big thank you to Shinpei Se for being with us today. It was fascinating to learn more about where transportation meets inclusivity, climate, health, and more. If you're enjoying the show, Please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, I'm Ratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada.